Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, uh, one of our favorite authors, speakers, uh, one of our favorite voices in the discussion on um Parenting. Uh, this this person has co-authored four books that have probably changed your life if you've read them. Um, if not, it's because you have not read them yet. <laughs> and uh, just released her newest book, Bottom Line for Baby. Uh, our our guest today is none other than uh, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, and she is going to come and talk with us today about creating felt safety. And uh, if you've heard this topic talked about with her before, you know this is one of uh, her sweet spots as um, as a teacher. And so uh, you do not want to miss what she's got to say today. Um, she was super, super fun to talk to. Um, Tina is also uh, the founder and executive director for the Center of Connection, Center for Connection, uh, which is a multidisciplinary clinical practice um, and the Play Strong Institute, which is a center devoted to the study, research, and practice of play therapy um, through, of course, a neurodevelopment lens. And so uh, Tina's got a few things going on, but she was gracious enough to great uh, to give us some time uh, with her today to talk. And so you're gonna you're gonna love the conversation with her today. Uh, get a pad of paper and some and a pen uh, ready, and just be ready to take some notes because uh, what she's got for us in the show is just pure gold. So uh, you're gonna love it. Here she is, Tina Payne Bryson. Like I said in the open, we are here with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson and uh, Tana Ottinger from ETC. And so uh, we're going to talk with Dr. Bryson today about a lot of different things, but uh, wanted to start off by just um, letting you introduce yourself and kind of share a little bit about who you are and your work and what you do. Hi, y'all. Thanks so much for having me. I am a mom to three boys who range in age right now from 14 to almost 21 in a couple of weeks. Um, and I am a licensed clinical social worker. So I've done a lot of work in the mental health world with kids and teenagers and a lot of parenting support and help. Um, and I love to talk about the brain and relationships and the mind. Those are sort of my areas of geekiness. I love all science actually. Well, not all. Don't get me into the bio and physics and stuff. I guess I mean <laughs> stuff related to brain, mind, and relationships. Um, but yeah, I love to do any kind of work that helps parents be more intentional. I also do a lot of work with teachers, educators, um, and with mental health clinicians as well. Awesome. Awesome. What, what was it for you? What was the draw to working with the brain as opposed to, uh, going into something more psychological in, in nature? Why, why study the brain instead of going kind of the traditional counseling sort of route? Well, I didn't mean to. In fact, <laughs> everything that's happened in my life professionally has happened not out of ever a pre-plan. It's always been me chasing the next thing that lit me up, that was sort of like the path illuminated and I took that's the awesome. next step. So um, my plan always was to be a stay-at-home mom. That's what I wanted to do more than anything. And I was able to actually do that until my youngest went to kindergarten. 
And what happened though, was I had a baby and my husband um, is an English professor and we moved to California where he was offered a job, which thrilled me. I'm from Southern California. My family was there. I had a four month old baby and I was dying to get back close to my mom. So we moved to California and after a handful of months, my husband said, you know, we're really going to need to think about you working because we can't afford to live on my salary here. And I was like, but that's not the plan. And he said, well, we have to change the plan. So I said, okay, well, look, if I'm going to work, um, and at this point I, um, I had a master's in social work. Um, I said, if this is the plan, if I'm going to need to work, then I need a job that will allow me to be a really engaged mom. So mm. I think a professor would be great. I love to teach my undergrad was in, in, education and I was going to be a high school English teacher before that. So I said, well, I have to get a PhD really fast and then, <laughs> then I'll work. So I ended up starting um, a doctoral program um, and uh, working on a PhD in social work. And what happened is that I was frustrated in all, in all of my classes because my professors would be teaching me things like, you know, this particular type of therapy is the best evidence-based approach for this particular disorder. And I would say, okay, great, but why? What is the mechanism of change that's causing that particular intervention to work in that way? And I was one semester in, and I went to a conference called From Neurons to Neighborhoods, because I had, before this moment, I had heard Bruce Perry speak, and I was like, my brain just almost exploded. I was so interested in, in how he wove together so many different um, fields and, and really was looking at the brain. And so I went to this Neurons to Neighborhoods conference and Dan Siegel was the keynote. And this was before Dan was big and before I didn't know who he was. And when he got up and started talking about the science of integration, how differentiated parts or parts that are specialized in our brain work together as a coordinated whole, that that leads to a system that is more sophisticated and resilient and flexible and adaptive and stable. Um, and then we, and then as I started to kind of learn some of that, I was like, this is what's helping me understand the mechanism. And so Dan was um, starting a study group at that time to go deep into the science of interpersonal neurobiology. So in addition to my PhD work, I was studying with Dan and I did that for about 10 years, um, studying deep into this field. And as I was doing that, and I kept having babies while I was in this program, um, I would sit in LA traffic learning about how, you know, the work at that time for Dan and in his study group was really heavily focused on how to help adults who were really struggling create more integration in their lives and how to do, go back mm-hmm. and do some healing and that kind of thing. And so yeah. here I am with, you know, nursing babies and toddlers. <laughs> and I was thinking, what can I do from the beginning to facilitate Mm. integration in the brain. And the more I was learning about the brain and the nervous system, the more I realized that a lot of what we all do as parents and the way we communicate, the way we understand and respond to behavior really didn't make a lot of sense when when I was understanding how the nervous system worked. And so it started really transforming the way I was parenting and I started teaching it to other parents and then it was transforming their work. And so I said, well, gosh, I feel like we need to share this. So I had never planned on writing books and here I am (laughs) five books later, um, four with Dan and then uh, my first solo book, The Bottom Line for Baby that just came out this year as well. Um, And really it it was a passion project to take the science that can help us see, understand, attune to our children and then respond in ways that not only help them feel safe and connected and build the relationship, but that build the brain over time as well. And so it just 
it just sort of all happened. I shouldn't say by accident, but um, <laughs> without an intentional roadmap, but it was really just following what is lighting me up. What do I feel called to do? What will have an impact? And that's how I ended up doing that. But the brain, I think, really is transformational. Um, and I want to just be really clear when I say brain, the brain is just part of the nervous system. So, and the brain is embodied. So every time I say brain, I'm thinking the whole nervous system. Yeah. So, yeah. um, we tend to, the brain is more popular than the rest of the nervous system. So we tend to, you know, talk about it because it's an easier, it's easier to say right. than the embodied brain or the brain as part of the integrated nervous system. But, um, I think, we are still at the beginning of really understanding a lot of, of what the nervous system does and how our relationships really have an impact on how our, our nervous systems function. Awesome. Well, I can say for me personally, I'm incredibly grateful for the work that you've done. I, I remember um, exactly where I was sitting when I cracked open the whole brain child. However, do you remember how many years ago it was that y'all wrote that? I I do. Um, It will have its 10-year anniversary in October of 2021 because I remember because I'm turning 50 in the fall of 2021 and I I was 40. My baby started kindergarten. I turned 40 and the book came out all in a matter of weeks. So it was was kind of a, a big moment in my life. So yeah, it came out nine and a half years ago. I mean, I remember where I was sitting when I opened it and thought this not only explains everything, but changes everything. And so, I mean, I am 10 years into being just a huge advocate of the work that you guys have done and just putting those ideas and thoughts and instructions and care around parents and caregivers. So um, I'll just start out by saying thank you for being faithful to start Aww. that journey that you didn't necessarily mean to start. Um, <laughs> and and I'll, I, I will tell you. my husband a little bit here. He doesn't mind. If he was on, he would let me tell him. <laughs> he, he, um, he, when the whole brain child came out, he was like handing it off to everybody. And he was like, guys, it has illustrations. It has illustrations. <laughs> And um, it was just so incredibly helpful for us. I mean, we really were at the time when you guys published the book, we were in a season of reframing behavior in our family and trying to understand, really get to the bottom yeah. of what's going on with our kids. Um, and so it, it was a huge help. So I, I appreciate the work that you've done thus far. Um, so speaking of Thank the work- Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I wonder if you would just start off by talking to us about- the power of showing up and how y'all frame that through sort of the lens of the four S's. Would you mind talking to our listeners a little yeah. bit? About that? Yeah. Oh, I would love to. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> and I'll just tell a little insider story here that not very many people know. So we wrote, when we wrote The Whole Brain Child, the conclusion of The Whole Brain Child was really, really long, the manuscript as we were writing it. And we went into all this stuff. We weren't calling it the four S's at the time, but we were talking about how, so we've written all this stuff about integration, we name it to tame it, you know, um, connect and redirect, all this stuff in The Whole Brain Child. And then in the end, we were like, look, here's the most important thing you need to know. The most important thing you need to know is that, you know, over 50 years of cross-cultural research tells us that one of the most important predictors of how well your kid turns out is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. And then we started talking about what that meant and about attunement and repair and all this stuff. And our editor said, 
this is so good, but it's really distracting from the book because you're saying, look, all this important stuff you've already written about, you're like, here's the most important thing. She's like, that's a different book. That's a whole separate book. So we pulled it from The Whole Grain Child. Um, And then we were getting so many questions about discipline that we wrote No Drama Discipline. And I still love that book so much because it's a total although less radical now, now that it's, it's been out, you know, lots more people are talking about disciplining in this way, but it was a pretty radical shift there. Um, and then we wrote the guest brain and then the power of showing up. So the power of showing up is the book that needed and wanted to be written from the very beginning. Um, and it's based on attachment science. And I want to be really clear that what I'm going to be talking about when I'm referring to attachment is not the same thing as attachment parenting. Um, It's really a whole separate, um, it's a field under the umbrella of developmental psychology. And, you know, there are a lot of things in attachment parenting that are lovely for many families, but I want to just assure parents that even if you do the the behaviors that are... um, uh, that are suggested in attachment parenting, even if you do those, it doesn't ensure your child would be securely attached to you. And even if you don't do any of them, that doesn't mean your child won't be securely attached to you. So I really wish it had been called something different because I think it can get people really confused, but attachment was never meant to be about enacting a handful or series of behaviors. It's really about, um, tuning in, meeting needs, um, and, the purpose of attachment, and I'll define what I mean by it, but the purpose of it is to help a child, a vulnerable infant at the beginning, um, have a better chance of survival. So attachment is a mammal instinct. So it's an inborn mammal instinct. um, And what it does is it allows us to connect and protect with our, uh, with our children and with our partners, attachment is actually a, an attachment need. These attachment needs are throughout the whole lifespan, but it's a biological instinct. Let me just get really clear. It's a biological instinct that drives you to get close or to be connected to someone who will help you get regulated physiologically and emotionally. So let me give a really specific example. So I have a golden retriever who you might hear at some point in the background because we all work from home now. Um, but I took Bluebell to get groomed. We don't do that very often. We're really low maintenance people. She's scruffily and scraggly looking most of the time, but she had some really bad tangles. And so I took her to the groomer. And once she kind of realized what was going to happen, she began to shake and get and, and she kind of get close to me and I crouched down. So here's what happens. You know, I'm her attachment figure. Um, She is in distress. She's noticing something's happening that's making her feel frightened. And she has a physiological response. She's shaking. Um, She's panting more. So I imagine her heart is is beating faster. Her respiration has certainly increased and she gets close to me. And then as her attachment figure, I notice she's feeling afraid. I tune into what her you know, internal state is. I notice her behaviors and I crouch down next to her. I start to pet her. I start talking to her. And as I do that, um, the attachment relationship is transformative in that moment because she stops shaking. She starts breathing more regularly. She feels safe. She feels connected and protected. And that's really what attachment is. is a, it's a biological instinct that drives us to an attachment figure that um, helps us, like I said, regulate our physiological states and our emotional states. And the purpose of it is to 
make it more likely we can survive. So that's fundamentally what attachment is about. So what Dan and I um, love to do, and you know, if you know our books, that we love acronyms or easy ways to remember ideas. And so we really wanted to boil down if providing secure attachment is one of the most important things we can do for how our children turn out. And that's based on longitudinal research that looks at many, many different factors, including having healthier romantic relationships in adolescence and adulthood and academic performance and being a leader and being able to regulate your emotions and on and on and on. Um, that if that's the most, one of the most important things we can do, how do we do it? Okay. So there are really sort of two paths to one path is to know the research that says the single best predictor for how well we're able to provide secure attachment is not whether or not we had it with our own caregivers. Thank goodness. Because about 40% of us had a more insecure pattern of attachment. And that's kind of outside the scope of your question. So I'll just briefly mention that could be something along the lines of, that, of a parent who um, doesn't show up for you. They minimize your emotions. If you have an emotional need, they don't see in response. So you kind of grow up in an emotional desert where you're left to be on your own and isolated to deal with emotional issues. Or you have a really unpredictable caregiver who um, you can't count on because they might show up for you, but they might not. And maybe you even have to take care of them, but you don't have a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to soothe you or help you. Um, or the, the, the most challenging of insecure attachment patterns is what's called disorganized attachment. And that's where you have what we call in the literature a biological paradox because you have one circuit that says go to your caregiver to be protected, but the other circuit says get away from this caregiver because the caregiver is the source of your fear, the source yeah. of your terror, the source of your pain. So the good news is that history is not destiny. So if you grew up with one of those patterns of attachment, the key finding in the research is that if you reflect on those experiences and make sense of them and say, gosh, my parents didn't show up for me in this way. And so here's how that impacted me. And here's how I want to do things differently. And that kind of thing. That's the best predictor for us being able to protect our children and become their secure attachment figure. So that's one path, but that's an ongoing path. We're always needing to be doing reflection. We're always needing to say, okay, I just acted in a way as a parent that was not the kind of parent I want to be. So what was that about for me, right? So that's an ongoing thing. So now I want to talk about the second path, back to your question, um, which is how do we promote secure attachment in everyday moments? How do we do this when our kid won't get out of the bathtub? How do we do this when we have lost it as a parent and, and acted in a way that didn't help our kids feel safe? How do we do this when we're trying to make decisions for our family and what what kinds of parents we're going to be? And this is where Dan and I came up with the four S's. And the four S's is really... For me personally, it's my North Star because as, as a parent, as a wife, even a clinician at times, I'm not sure exactly the right thing to do or say in the moment. But this is always my North Star because if I respond in a way that helps my child feel the four S's or my partner feel the four S's, then I'm doing the best thing I can do because it only not only in the moment, but it's also building the brain and building the relationship. So the four S's are safe. And that's protecting our children from harm, but also working hard to not be the source of their fear and the source of their yeah. fear. And so we can talk more about that if you'd like, but that's really about 
protecting our children from harm, including the harm that we might be bringing. The second one is seen. And seen, I think, is a really hard one because what it requires is for us to look at the mind behind the behavior. The goal of seen is our children grow up to say, my parents knew who I was and loved me for who I was, not who they wanted me to be. And so the way we get there is that in the everyday moments, when our child is having a fit or is complaining or is, you know, freaking out about something that we are not just focused on their behavior, but we really tune into what they're feeling in their interior landscape and really connect with them. So I'll give you a really specific example. Um, And I just want to say quickly too, that having boundaries and limits, that structure piece is crucial. Um, Everything I'm going to say from here on out for the rest of the S's is going to sound really nurture, warm, fuzzy, connected. But I, I, I want to be perfectly clear that I am not a fan of permissive parenting. We can still have really good boundaries, expectations, and limits. Um, And that in fact is part of the first S of safety. Those help our kids feel safe. So Totally. Here's a here's a safe and seen, um, and uh, actually, let me tell soothed first, and then I'll go back to the example. So soothed is really about helping our children, nurturing them, comforting them, helping them, um, and we tend to do a pretty good job when they're physically hurt, but when it comes to emotional hurt, that often comes out as inappropriate behavior, disrespectful behavior, it's really hard for us to move into that space. But it's really about co-regulation. It's helping our children calm down. Um, And then what that leads to is the fourth S of secure. And that doesn't mean like secure self-esteem, although that is an outcome. What it means instead is that when our children have not perfect, but enough predictable repeated experiences because the brain wires from repeated experiences of feeling safe and seen and soothed, they develop this fourth S of secure, which means that their brains have wired to know and expect that if they have a need, someone will see it and show up for them. And then something even more powerful happens, and that is that they learn how to show up for themselves. They learn how to keep themselves safe. They learn how to see and understand themselves. They learn how to soothe themselves and they learn how to show up for other people and provide that security for other people. So, so let me give just a really concrete example of my five-year-old who refuses to get out of the bathtub and he's having a meltdown. And the first thing I do is I have to remember that if I want to be the first S of safe, then I want to be the safe harbor. He's got his little boat out in this big storm right now. His emotional storm is raging and I want to be the safe harbor that he can come to. That means I can't be the storm. Okay. So what I need to do before I begin this interaction is to regulate myself. So I put a hand on my chest. I put a hand on my belly. I take a long, deep breath where my exhale is longer than my inhale because that helps down-regulate nervous system arousal, because these these dysregulated acting out states are contagious. Um, So it's easy for me to join the storm with my son. (laughs) Yes. So I really take a moment to regulate myself. And then I do some mental preparation, and I just say to myself, this is going to be hard. This is going to be unpleasant. 
that this is when he needs you most. And that's really the truth about attachment is that at our children's worst, that is when they need us the most. And that's the hardest time to show up. So (laughs) I say, it's time to get out, JP. And I have permission to tell this story. Um, This child is now 14, so he can give informed consent. Um, So I say, it's time to get out, JP. And he says, I'm not getting out. And he splashes me and he's yelling. And you, you all know how this goes, you know, it, it was because this one particular Lego guy wasn't in the tub, even though there were 20 other Lego guys. And right, so this right. is, you know, all of this is because of one Lego guy. So as a parent, it's so easy in that moment to say, are you kidding me? Like you have all these other guys. I don't know why you're so upset. <laughs> yep. Or to say, if you're going to act this way, I'm not reading stories tonight. You're not going to have bedtime routine tonight. Mm. But when I do that, it actually escalates the distress It doesn't do anything to teach or build skills for the next time. It's really a lose-lose if I go that route. So instead, I say to him, I'm going to hold my boundary. I'm going to help him feel safe by knowing I'm being predictable. And I say, you can either get out by yourself or I will help you out. And he says, I'm not getting out. So I slip my hands under his little slippery armpits. (laughs) And I'm gentle with how I touch him because I'm, remember, I'm working on also the self-regulation the whole time. Yeah. And as I lift him out, I'm practicing scene. And I say, you're, because the idea is that I want to respond to him in a way that is a match. What I say and do is a match to what he's feeling inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say, you're so mad that bath time is over. You really did not want to get out. Is that right? You just really are upset about this. And when I do that, all kinds of good things are happening. You know, his, he's getting emotional vocabulary. He's connecting, you know, what I'm saying to what he's feeling. We know from the science that when we name what we're feeling, it helps tame the reactivity. Um, he's also learning that I can handle his big feelings and I get him. Yeah. Um, and so, I, and I, I set him on the ground and then now it's time for soothing. I go to the next S. So I wrap the towel around him. And I say, if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you while you cry. So in that moment, I'm saying, I'm going to help you. And I can tolerate your big feelings. And I trust that you can handle your big feelings. And the way that children become resilient is by practicing dealing with difficult feelings and difficult circumstances with enough support. So in that moment, I'm building resilience by allowing him to feel. And, you know, I'll just say one other thing and then I'll pause because I've been talking a super long time now. And that (laughs) is that one of the big pushbacks I get on Soothe Mm -hmm. when I say, my child's throwing a fit. He splashed me. He's being belligerent and oppositional. And you're going to hug him and wrap a towel around him and tell him it's okay to cry. Are you kidding me? You know, you're just, what what people say is, you know, you're just indulging him and the world is not going to be like that. And so aren't you giving more attention to the negative behavior? This is, doesn't make any sense to me. And I have two answers to that. One is parents confuse all the time. And I know you all talk about this a lot in Empowered to Connect, that nurture and structure are different domains. So parents make the mistake of thinking you can either have structure and boundaries and limits and rules, or you can be connected and nurturing and empathetic and soothing. And the truth is that what the nervous system tells us is that the most effective combination is both together. So that's number one. And then number two, when I lift a weight, when I do a curl with a weight, 
and I do that over and over again, I'm building that muscle, right? We do reps, we get stronger muscles. This is the way the prefrontal cortex works as well, is that in childhood, particularly when the brain is so plastic, is that when you have a repeated experience, it's building that circuitry in the brain. So when I help my child go from a dysregulated state Mm -hmm. into a regulated state, they're getting a rep for how to do that. So it's actually increasing their capacity for self-regulation. So it's the opposite of indulgent. It's the opposite of spoiling. I'm building skills yes. um, so that they have the, you know, that skill set. Well, you took the question I was going to ask. So that's one. <laughs> that was exactly, exactly going to be my, my next question. So one of the things I always try to think out or, or look out for are the dads or, you know, people coming out of a very traditional parenting um, background or mindset. And so uh, if you don't mind going a little bit deeper into this, where, you know, in the kind of field of interpersonal neurobiology, like talking about uh, providing that emotional stability and safety and um, like secure attunement and attachment, all of that is actually the better foundation for building discipline into kids. Would you mind talking about discipline in the way that you have framed it in, in your work and, uh, and kind of laying that out for us? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing we need to do is understand that most parents don't even have a discipline philosophy. They've never really thought through. Mm-hmm. They've never really even thought through what their goal is and how they want to get there. So let's yeah. start with that. Yeah. For me and for a lot of parents, the goal is to raise a child who has inner discipline, who is self-disciplined, who does the right thing when no one's looking. And the way that we get there is by, one, trusting development to unfold. Because even without any parental input, as the brain matures, they have greater capacity for inner discipline. So that's one, is to just trust development. And number two is to do skill building and to build the brain in the most optimal way so that they, they know how and have the capacity to make good decisions, to regulate their behavior, to regulate their emotions, to have morality, um, to have empathy, to have insight about themselves, all of those things. And by the way, those are all functions of the prefrontal cortex. And secure attachment relationships are one of the most powerful ways that we build that part of the brain. Um, you know, even you can, you can hear in the story, the bathtub story, you know, that when I'm saying you're so angry, like I'm doing all of that stuff that helps, I'm showing him empathy. So he's building empathy. He's hearing those words. So he's gaining insight. These are all functions of the prefrontal cortex. So, okay. So here's the deal with the no drama discipline lens or the whole brain discipline lens. And that is we have gotten really confused as a society and actually a lot around the world about what discipline is. We think, in fact, when Dan and I were writing No Drama Discipline, we had a colleague say, please don't use the word discipline in the title of your book. And the reason for that is because when we say discipline, people think punishment and consequences. And so Dan and I um, love to, uh, so Dan was like, you know what, let's reclaim the original meaning of the word. Let's create Mm -hmm. a whole revolution around when we say discipline, that people know it means something else. And so discipline, if you go back to the root of the word, it actually means to teach. So you think about Jesus's disciples, you think about disciplines in a college. So every discipline moment and the goal of discipline is to teach and build skills so that your child over time as development unfolds can do it on their own. 
So what that means is that if I'm an effective disciplinarian, and by that I mean teacher and skill builder and (laughs) co-regulator, then I'm actually having to discipline less over time because my child is now taking the reins of that for me. Like at the beginning, I have to do a lot of it. But as I'm building skills and as my child matures, I'm doing less and less of it. That lets me know I'm being an effective disciplinarian. So what that means in the moment then is that in the moment, whenever something has come up that needs to be addressed, a discipline moment, the first question I need to ask is, is my child ready to learn? Because the brain is either in a reactive state where it cannot learn Or it's in a receptive state in which it's ready to learn. So if your child is having a meltdown, Mm -hmm. having big behaviors where they're not in control of themselves, they're not in a receptive, curious state, that's the worst time to discipline. And we've been told wrong by research done on animals in the 50s that you have to address the behavior right then and there or they won't learn. Right. We're much more sophisticated than dogs. That's not true even with a two-year-old. You know, your your two-year-old throws their shoe at your face you know that they're having a meltdown, you have a snack and a nap. And then after nap, you say, can, let's tell the story of when you threw your shoe at mommy's face and we, you know, we, we can address it later. Yeah. So in the moment we go, okay, is my kid ready to learn? If the answer is no, then you go, okay, how can I get my kid in a receptive state in order to learn? And yeah. usually the quickest, most effective way to do that for the nervous system is connection, empathy, and co-regulation. Mm-hmm. So in the name of discipline, we're going to start with connection, empathy, soothing, regulating to get them to that receptive state. And then another important thing to ask ourselves in that moment is, am I ready to teach? Am I regulated yeah. enough to be an effective teacher in this moment? And if the answer to that is no, then you need to regu- regulate yourself. And it's perfectly fine to tell our children I'm not sure how I want to respond to this, or I'm not ready to talk about this. Yeah. I need to spend some time to think about this, or I'm going to go... Um, close my eyes for a few minutes and take some deep breaths so I can I can handle this in a way that will feel good to both of us or yeah, something like that. Yeah, so yeah. you don't have to respond in the moment if you need it. Mm-hmm. So then really in those moments, we want to go, okay, what is it? What is the skill here? So my kid slapped his brother so hard that he left a handprint one time. <laughs> and I um, I comforted the victim, you know, comforted, you know, him and, um, and made sure he was okay. My boys were probably, and, um, then I had, it was the discipline moment. I had to deal with the perpetrator. So I came around the corner and my kid is furious. He's, you know, his face is red, his muscles are tense. He's gritting his teeth. He's so angry. So immediately in my mind, go, he's red yet. So the way I get him there is through connection and empathy. I'm going to soothe his nervous system to get him into this place. Now we have yeah. to remember too, that the way we think about our kids' behavior matters a lot. If in my mind, my internal dialogue is, um, he is such a brat. I can't believe he would yes. do this. Yeah. And he's doing this to just make everybody have a hard day. I'm responding in a really different way. And if in my mind, go, oh, he's got stress response right now and his nervous system, like he's flipped his lid and this is when he needs me the most, right? If he were in physical pain, it would be really easy to access that. And we have to know as parents right. that the yeah. part of the brain that lights up when physical pain is the same part of the brain that lights up when we're in emotional pain. So I go, oh, my kid needs me right now. 
And when I, when I have that internal dialogue in that moment, I pause and I go, oh my goodness, poor guy. He's like, his big feelings have just overwhelmed him. It's so much easier for me to get there authentically. So I say, oh baby, you're so angry. Come here. What happened? Mm-hmm. And I wrap my arms around him and he is telling me about all the mean stuff his brother just did. And I empathize. I say, that would have made me mad too. Of course you got angry. Yeah. And as I'm rubbing his back and I'm, I'm, you know, connecting with him within just a couple of minutes, he's calm. And then is when we address the behavior. He's receptive. He's ready to learn. Now, if in that moment I'd come around the corner and it was time to deal with him and I had said, you know what, you, I cannot believe you hit your brother. Why did you hit your brother? And I'm asking a question, but I'm not really asking a question. I'm <laughs> lecturing and yelling. And you know, clearly can't be with people today. So you go to your room and I'm canceling your play date. Yeah. If I had done that, he would have gone to his room and thought about how mean his brother is, how mean I am to do this to him, and no one understands how he feels. And his entire emotional, attentional, and cognitive attention or energy would go to everybody else's behavior. Yes. It would be much more effective Mm -hmm. if I go back to the way I handled it in the moment where I say, you know, I calm him down. I rub his back. I soothe him. Of course you felt angry. And then I can say to him, I'm ready to address the behavior. I, it's okay to be angry, but I know, you know, it's not okay to hurt somebody. It's everybody has to feel safe in our house. So what do you think happened? I know, you know, it's not okay to do that. So what do you think happened? And then he tells me I got so mad and I tried to talk to him about it. And then he made fun of me. And so we have this conversation. And then after we talk about what happened and give some language to that, we talk about how can you make things right? So then he has to talk about and think about what he did to his brother and then going and making the repair. And then we say, okay, next time you get angry, what could you do instead? So at the end of that relation, he's had to take accountability and have more attention given to his role and his behavior. So in a way, like I'm kind of being stricter. I'm kind of using air quotes for those of you who are listening. I'm being stricter in terms of really holding his attention to his responsibility here. Um, And I feel like had I just thrown out a consequence, it wouldn't have done anything to change his behavior. It wouldn't have done anything to build skills. I'm not saying don't ever use consequences, but I'm saying to you that when you begin to ask the question, what is the lesson or skill my child needs practice with? And what's the most effective way to give them practice with that? A consequence is almost never the answer in my experience. So I just want us to be more thoughtful about what is it going for and how do we get there? And so I think it's transformational just to simplify it and wrap it up here. If we could get parents to just think about each discipline moment as a teaching moment, or at least the majority of them, if we leave those moments as teaching moments, as skill building moments, that could change everything. Mm. I love it. I love it. Okay. So I have a burning question for you. Um, and it is, what do we do when we don't respond that way in the moment? So can we talk about sort of the shame storm that might be happening to us as parents? If we, you know, flip our lid or react in a way that isn't helpful and is not producing the four S's in ourselves or our children. And then um, maybe sort of hand in hand, how would you support a kiddo that sort of spirals into a bit of a shame storm 
in that moment of soothing Yeah, when they're really getting hard on themselves, you know? Okay. So when we have these ruptures with our kids, when we have moments where we undermine their sense of felt safety, then it's really important in that moment. One of the big things that makes them not feel safe is that we become unpredictable. So we start acting in ways that we typically don't. And especially if children are young or if they have a trauma history, that can be really frightening. So one of the things that's so exciting, and I love the research that we talk about in The Power of Showing Up because it's full of hope, right? That idea of history is not destiny. Um, one other big a message from the literature is that it's never too late because our attachment um, wiring is connected to the kinds of experiences we've had. So once we start changing the kinds of experiences relationally we provide our children, their brains start changing too. So it's never too late. And then this this other big message of hope is that even when we mess up, it can actually be beneficial for kids as long as we have the repair or the reconnection. Yes. And the reason for that is if you imagine in the moment, so, you know, I've got this, this Yahtzee incident, I've thrown the dice across the room, I've yelled at my kids, Um, And then once I realize what I'm doing, um, I say, I'm so sorry I handled it that way. I really wish I had done that differently. I got angry, but I didn't handle it very well. Will you forgive me? And can we have a do-over? Sometimes I even ask for a do-over. The key in those moments, well, two things. One is we have to be thoughtful about how we're apologizing because I always wanted to raise my children to know that they are responsible for their behavior no matter what anybody else does. Yeah. I'm going to undermine that message if the way I apologize is to say, you know, I'm really sorry I yelled and that I threw the dice, but you guys were not listening to me. And if you had been listening to me, that would not have happened. I'm totally blaming them for my behavior. So we want to be really careful that in our apologies that we take responsibility for our behavior. And the second beneficial for our children when we mess up, as long as we make the repair, is that it it is resilience building. And let me break that down just a minute. So let's say you're unpredictable, you yell, um, or you act really immature, or maybe you grab your kid's arm a little too hard, or you really are reactive in a way, and you treat your child in a way you would never let anybody else treat them. You're unpredictable in that moment. If you consistently repair and reconnect with your child after moments like that, then in that moment, your child's going to not like it. They're going to say, gosh, my mom was really scary and I didn't like it when she yelled or that, you know, that was really unpleasant and relationships feel really messy and this doesn't feel good right now. And I know based on all the previous experiences that even though she's unpredictable right in this moment, I predict and know that she's going to come make it right in a few minutes. Yeah. So what it does is it actually widens their window of tolerance and resilience for the messiness of relationships and being able to be resilient when there's inevitable conflict. So it actually, not only obviously are we modeling how to repair and make apologies, but we're also really widening their window of tolerance for the conflict that comes in relationships. So I think that's really key. So that even in moments when our children don't feel safe, as long as we make the repair with them and we do that consistently, it doesn't undermine the safety that much. It really is like, oh, this doesn't feel good, but I know things are going to be okay in a minute. So there's a, there's a, there's almost like a safety net around them feeling safe <laughs> right, when, when we right. make those repairs. And then I think the other thing to note is that we can feel a lot of shame after those experiences. Yeah. I remember um, after the rip your tongue out uh, situation <laughs> where I, I had told my three-year-old if he stuck his tongue out one more time, I was going to rip it out of his mouth. 
Um, I was going to Ikea with my friend who also had a three-year-old. So we were taking the boys to Ikea and we got to Ikea and we were eating our meatballs. And I said, oh my gosh, I just feel so horrible. And I shared this experience with her. I was really like weighing on my heart that I had done that to my child. Yeah. And she was like, oh, that's nothing. And she made me feel so much better because then she started sharing her stuff. And so I actually wrote an article that's on my website called Parenting Hall of Shame, Now Accepting Members. And I think it's so important that we um, that we look at those stories. And I want to yeah. really reorient the experience of shame for everybody. When we have moments like that, it really is an invitation to be curious. And if instead of going down this shame spiral route, we can activate a sense of curiosity in ourselves. Yeah. It's going to keep us from being more vulnerable to flipping our lid more. And, and shame is not helpful. Um, right. Healthy guilt can be helpful because we go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. What do I need to do differently? But, but shame is toxic and it's not helpful. So one of the things that's kind of like a shame buster or a shame armor is to invoke curiosity and to say, okay, that's not the way I want to parent. That's not the way I typically parent. So what got in the way for me? What's getting in the way for me to be the parent I want to be in that moment? Yeah. Or another question to ask along those lines is to say, what was that about for me? Mm. And sometimes the answer is I haven't peed by myself in two years and I'm hungry <laughs> and I'm tired and I look like hell and no one has, I haven't had an adult conversation and I'm sick of these people. Yeah. And- yeah. And then other times it might say, you know what, when my kid um, rejects me or doesn't listen to me, it really activates something in me. And I'm not sure what that is. And I'm going to take a look at it. It's an invitation to do some reflection, to do some self-care, you know, some some thinking about some self-care. And when we're in states of curiosity, it actually keeps our prefrontal cortex more integrated with the more reactive structures from our downstairs brain. So I think that's a really important thing. And then the thing I would say about children who feel shame, when, when children have behaviors that are not okay um, and they begin a shame spiral, um, obviously we want to say, you know, we want to have a culture in our families um, before those moments, during those moments, and after those moments where we, we say people make mistakes. It's great that we make yeah. mistakes. We should make mistakes because that means we're learning new ways to do things. So we we have a culture that's um, fighting against perfectionism in our families. Um, and we, we cop to our own mistakes like, oh shoot, I forgot the such and such, or yeah. I burned the rolls again. You know, oh, well, people make mistakes. You know, we, we want to model that. But when your child is in a shame state around their behavior, sometimes we can, we can almost think about it like a meltdown in a way, they're probably not fully integrated using their problem solving, calm, um, you know, integrated upstairs brain, their prefrontal cortex. Um, and so bottom up responses, so top down means we're problem solving, we're thinking, we're coming up with options. That's using prefrontal. We call that top down. Bottom up is more where we're using more of our nervous system that is like our breathing, our posture, our movement, um, touch, all the sensory stuff. When your child is in a shame sort of spiral, I know it sounds kind of silly, but sensory kinds of things can be really helpful, like a really fuzzy blanket, a warm drink, um, a hug, you know, touch, 
um, really comfy jammies, you know, those kinds of sensory yeah. things regulate our nervous system. They do just like your, when your infant was crying and you would pat and shush and rock, those kinds of things are soothing. So that's one way we can think about that. And then the other is if you can invoke play and silliness and laughter, that's a way to release nervous system arousal and shame and play and laughter and silliness are really opposite states. So if you can move into that, um, like, you know, have your kid, like you might even say, can I pretend to be you for a minute? And you can see for some kids that might make them feel like they're being made fun of. That's where attunement comes in. Right. Um, or, you know, you, if you have a family pet, call the pet in and, you know, sometimes they can really help shift the situation. Um, but you want to just comfort your child in those moments. One other thing I'll mention is that some kids, even after they're calm and you try to go have the reflective dialogue with them, they can go back into shame spiral really quickly and be really hard on themselves. My experience with that as a mental health provider uh, clinician is that I often find that kids who are really hard on themselves tend to be really bright kids who tend to overthink things anyway. And so what happens is they're already running through, I shouldn't have done that. And I, you know, I, I can't believe I did that. And they're, they're being way harder on themselves than even you would be as the disciplinarian. So one of the ways kind of strange to think about it this way, but we can let kids off the hook that are putting themselves on in those moments. Because remember the key is for them to reflect on the behavior and have some skill building around it. So instead of going in and having more reflective dialogue, we feel like we're doing the right thing as a parent. We're coming in and saying, let's talk about what happened and we're giving them lots of empathy. But by by over-talking about it, if they're already overthinking it, that's actually not a very attuned response. And so we can say to our child, it looks like you've already been thinking about this for a while. And it looks like maybe you're being hard on yourself can we forgive you? You know, can you forgive yourself? And I trust that you've thought about it and that you're going to think about how to handle it differently next time. And why don't we just have a do-over? Let's just erase what just happened and have a start, you know, have a do-over button. We can let them off the hook and that will give them practice moving on and not staying stuck in those states. And so I know it seems counterintuitive. You think, okay, well, let's have the reflective dialogue and on, you know, whatever, but we can just say, you know what? Sometimes we make bad decisions. Sometimes we have hard days. I'm ready for a do-over. Are you ready for a do-over? I trust that you're already thinking about it and just move on. So we can model that and give, let them off the hook as well. That's so good. That's so good. And I think that that emotional attunement piece is something that it takes a long time for us to dial in on. And then once you start to see some success with it, it's a huge thing for parents to know. Um, So thank you for that. Um, Well, as we wrap up... It does get easier, just like experiences change our children's brains, they change our brains. And when your child is melting down, and I've had a lot of success with this clinically with parents who have really big rage issues and get really dysregulated when their children do, is if you give yourself the practice of saying, okay, when my child is falling apart, that's when they need me the most, even though it looks like really bad behavior, and I'm going to address the behavior later. But right now I'm going to do what Tina told me to do, which is, and I rarely do any kind of prescription because that it so depends on the child and the moment and the parent, but this can be really helpful if you find yourself feeling like, I don't really know how to parent in the way that you're talking about is to, when your child is having a hard time, really two, uh, three things. The first is position your body in a really relaxed posture below your child's eye level. 
There's a lot of science behind that, but just briefly, it activates a different neural network in your nervous system when you are below someone's eye level in a relaxed posture. It, it activates a totally different uh, emotional response in you than if you're standing over someone with your hands on your hips and your muscles tense. So get below eye level in a relaxed posture, number one. Number two, say something empathetic about how your child is feeling. Oh, buddy, you look so angry or you're so upset. Um, this is so such a, you're having such a hard time. It can, you can even do general if you need to. And then number three is to say, I'm right here with you while you feel it. Mm. Because the difference between walking through something difficult and it leading to fragility or leading to uh, resilience is someone walking with you through it, right? Yeah. So that can be a really helpful. And when you start doing that as parents and you start practicing it and you see that it works and it feels good and you know it's building your child's brain and resilience then it gets easier for you. So you get more reps. Yeah. It gets, it gets much easier for you over time. It takes, it takes some time. Be patient with yourself. Your brain's not as plastic as your child. So you <laughs> may need more reps than your child. Oh, that is for sure. That is for sure. The truth. Um, well, as we wrap up and kind of head toward home on this, anything else you want parents to know, kind of your, your kind of closing remarks for parents, uh, as they're listening to this today. I think my favorite thing to tell parents is, this idea that, yes, you're going to mess up all the time. And the research says that's okay. You don't have to be perfect. What your children need most from you is your presence, you showing up, especially at the hard moments. That's what they need more than anything. And so what I want to say to parents is you don't have to perfectly help your children feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. It's really about showing up. And what Truly, I guess I would distill all of this to is that what your children need most parents from you, what they need most is you, flawed you, imperfect you, falling apart you at times, but you, you are a better parent than you think you are. Um, even when your child doesn't like you, you're still their hero. They still, you know, think you hung the moon. I mean, I have teenagers. They don't think I'm the best thing ever a lot of times, but they still, I'm still the first person they're going to call the minute they're in trouble or the minute they need something. Yeah. And so yeah. I feel like that's, that's what that means. So I think just remembering, you don't have to remember all the tricks. You don't have to, you know, do things in an exact way or read one book and follow exactly what's in it. Right. Tune into what your child needs and what they really need most is just you. And everybody can do that to the best of their ability. Awesome. Ah, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been this has been so so helpful, and and thank you for you for braving the internet storm at your house and, and dealing with uh, turning video on and off to optimize the audio. All that has been awesome. So thank you. Um, okay, we've been talking to Tina Payne Bryson. Her new book is the Bottom Line for Baby, and you should all uh, go buy it right now and uh, support uh, her work. But thank you so much for joining us today, Tina, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, wise, incredible words from Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Um, just love her last point. Your kids need you. They need you to show up and to bring all of yourself. And, uh, and you are enough um, in your failures, your successes, um, your, your victories, your triumphs, and, and your falls. Um, when we bring ourselves authentically to our kids, like that's, that's what they need. Um, so I, uh, 
I loved that interview. I'm sure you did too. Uh, you can find um, more information on Tina and her work at tinabryson.com. Uh, you should, if you have not already, bought uh, The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, um, The Yes Brain, Power of Showing Up, Bottom Line for Baby. Like, Make those part of your regular rotation of gifts to friends or uh, your, your once a year reads that you go through. Um, they're chock full of just the most important um, stuff that you could have as a parent. So we're just so grateful for her joining us today. Thank you to her. Thank you to Kyle Wright. He does engineer, engineer and edit all of our audio. Thanks to Tad Jewett, who came up with these sweet tunes to guide us in and out of the show. Uh, thanks to Tana Ottinger and everybody at ETC. Uh, for all of them, for all of you, I'm J.D. Wilson, and I'll see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast. Mm-hmm.